Okay. All right. That's a good crew that's leaving right now. <laughs> the future of our church. Well, I'm going to talk about uh, marriage this morning because that's the next passage in the book of Ephesians. And I would say that sometimes marriage is hard because we're different from each other. We look at things differently and we think differently. In fact, I want to give you 10 reasons why it's good to be a man this morning. Okay, if you'll indulge me just a little bit here. Number 10, cars. Number nine, you can go to the bathroom without a support group. Uh, number eight, if someone forgets to invite you to something, you can still be friends. Number seven, you can drop in on someone without a gift. Number six, if a guy stops by a party you're at and has the same shirt on as you, you can still be buddies. Number five, one wallet, one pair of shoes, one color. Number four, football. Number three, you know your buds will never ask you, so do you notice anything different about me? Number two, if something doesn't work right, you can just smash it with a hammer. And number one, your friends will never ask you if they look fat. Okay. I want to say to all these differences between men and women, viva la difference. So the question is, if we're very different from each other, how will our needs get met? How can we understand each other? So that's what I want us to look at today in our text. But I want to show you a couple of books here that I think are really great on this topic of marriage. The first is The Mystery of Marriage by Mike Mason. This is my all-time favorite. I see Sandy knows that. This book, my all-time favorite book in fact, on marriage. In fact, it's probably my top 25 books of all time. It's just written so exquisitely. It's so lovely and beautiful. It's, it's deep. It's philosophical. It's theological. I just can't recommend Mike Mason's book, The Mystery of Marriage, more. Speaking of mystery, let's read our text. Ephesians chapter 5, 21 to 33. We're working our way through the book of Ephesians. We're going to take a break next week, but we'll pick up Ephesians chapter 6 in January. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, 
Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, the Bible places verse 21 sometimes differently. If you had your Bible open and you looked at it, it can be in different sections. In mine, verse 22 begins a new section, but grammatically, verse 21 goes with 22 through 6, 9. It it lists in those following verses people who are to submit to others, wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. In fact, Peter adds a couple of more thoughts here. 2.13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Now, let's read First Peter 5.5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we see there's different levels and areas of submission. We might call it mutual submission. But I have an important word I want to add to the words of this section, and that word is unselfishness. It's a key word for good relationships. If every one of us were always unselfish, just think what great harmony we would have in our homes, in our workplaces. Unselfishness makes relationships work. Selfishness dooms them. A couple were sitting at the counselor's office and the wife was sitting there clutching a teddy bear. And the husband said, I think now you can see why we have such problems. My wife keeps stealing my teddy bear. Selfishness cripples marriages. And that's why Paul is advocating submissive attitude in them. If I'm to submit to older folks, to kings, shouldn't I all the more to my mate, the closest, most beloved person in my life, the most important person in the world to me? Again, the idea of mutual submission. Sometimes we struggle to forgive the people closest to us while we're so patient with coworkers and others. So this attitude of unselfishness is so crucial in home life. Now I want to add another word for each spouse. For the wife to give her husband the gift of unselfish respect. And for the husband to give his wife the gift of unselfish sacrifice. Let me show you another book that I highly recommend for marriage. Emerson Egerich's Love and Respect. This is more of a practical how-to book. That if you are having some issues in your marriage, I would highly recommend this book. Get it and just read it and work through it together. Kathy and I have a couple of times over our marriage, the most recent time, I think it was in 2009, and we just read out loud. We would take turns reading each chapter to each other, and then we would just talk about it. And I've got to admit, I I cried through the book, and I hardly ever cry about anything, but it it really touched me, so I recommend it. Emerson Egerich's love and respect for marriage. Let me first talk about a few cultural errors. The first is chauvinism. Historically, the Bible has been misused by men and husbands. Some husbands don't want a partner. They want a slave. The husband points to 522 and says, 
I demand to be obeyed. Just submit, woman. And it doesn't matter how he acts. And it's like he hasn't read the rest of Ephesians 5 beyond verse 22. He just stops right there. But you know what? Paul says more to the husband than he does to the wife in this section. Number two is feminism. So we see the pendulum has swung from chauvinism, which was so long the norm in our culture, to feminism, the opposite extreme. A woman hears the word submit and hears doormat. Someone to be walked on, someone lesser, someone dumb, not equal. And so she reacts. And some women in turn have turned against men and their families. They hate men. Men are the enemy. I will say, personally, it really bugs me when people say Paul and or the Bible oppresses women. They just don't know what they're talking about. Now, Jewish homes weren't the best places for women in Jesus's day. Women virtually had no rights. The husband could divorce her for almost any reason, according to the most popular rabbi of Jesus's day. If she spoke disrespectfully to him or his parents, if she spoke to another man out in public, if she burnt supper, she could be divorced. And the wife could only divorce her husband in those days if he became a leper, an apostate to the faith or a criminal. Roman homes, if you can believe it, were even worse. The wife was secluded The husband could have many mistresses. In fact, adultery was expected of him. There was much divorce and remarriage. One Roman leading citizen had 21 wives, and not at the same time. I'm not talking about a harem. 21 different wives. So Paul was writing into that cultural norm. So for Paul to say, and I want you to really grasp this, husbands, love your wives, that really was stunning That was revolutionary. Marriages, I think, are three basic types. A dictatorship. And it's not only the males who are the dictators. A wife can be a dictator, too. No submission, no love in that marriage. Second kind of marriage is a partnership. And I think that sounds pretty good, right? 50-50. Let's make a business arrangement together. Let me go shopping and you can watch football. Take me out to eat every once in a while and you can do your thing out in the garage. But what happens when one or the other doesn't hold up their end of the marriage or the the business arrangement? The whole thing breaks down. The partnership dissolves. If she doesn't do her part, I'm not going to do mine. If he hurts me, I'm going to hurt her. Back and forth it goes and it can get quite nasty. And really, it's very selfish. This 50-50 partnership To me, 50-50 partnership just means it's 100% me. The third kind of marriage is what I like to call my own term here, a fellowship marriage. Fellowship marriage because it's full of unselfish love and respect. That's the better way. But then I realized, wow, I can't do this on my own strength. I need God to continually crucify my old sin nature. And as I cry out for help to him, he helps me. Because you see, marriage is his idea. Paul quotes a verse in this section all the way back to Genesis, right from the Garden of Eden for the ideal. God wants your marriage to last forever. 
In fact, he likens it to the relationship between Christ and his church. It's, it's that deep and mysterious and profound. So how will my needs get met? By meeting your spouse's needs. That becomes your focus. And it's a kingdom principle, really. Give and it will be given unto you. That's how it works. That's how the kingdom works. That's how the spirit of God works. If you focus on yourself and your needs, you're going to be sadly disappointed. If you focus on God and your mate, you will find that your needs get met. But, Pastor, what if I do focus on my need, my mate and their needs and I get taken advantage of and my needs don't get met? Well, that can happen. That's why I need faith. God will help you. Most of the time, your needs will get met. But in the rare cases where they don't, unselfish respect and love is still the right course for you. We're going to look how the wife gives that first and then the husband. Wives show unselfish respect. Verses 22 through 24 and verse 33. Wives, that's your job description. It says submit to your husband's. Now, don't read more into it than it says, okay? It doesn't say submit to all men. It says submit to your husbands. Then he adds, as unto the Lord. So right away we see Jesus is brought into this picture. If you won't submit to Jesus, then you probably won't submit to your husband. And if you won't submit to your husband, you probably won't submit to Jesus either. Because the husband is a type of Christ. Paul says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, how did we find that word head? It can be defined as ruler or boss. Yeah, it can be. But it can also be defined as origin or source. We, we might say the head of a river, for instance. The head of the river is the beginning of the river, the, the source or the origin of the river. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the man. We look to him for leadership and resources in marriage. Living things work best with one head. Otherwise, it's a monster, right? A two-headed monster, we say. It's deformed. It's not natural. It doesn't work best. So the husband has been given the role by God of spiritual leadership in his home. And it's not easy. It's lots of responsibility. So wives help him by submitting to his leadership. Jesus submitted to the father. First Corinthians 11:3 says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So wives, in your role as submitting to your husband, you're like Jesus. The husband submits to Christ. So how does Jesus submit to God? We're going to read a passage in John 5. I think it's a, a wonderful marriage text that, that's never seen and read in that light. John 5, 18 to 23. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself Equal with God. 
So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives life gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father whoever does not honor the son, does not honor the father who sent him. So what are some principles here of the relationship between father and son that work well in marriage? Equality. Jesus wasn't less than God. He was God. He just took on a different role. Intimacy. We see that in this text. We see the deep love bond shared in the Godhead from all eternity past. That's how it should be in marriage, that deep love shared, a shared authority. We see that in this passage. Both are responsible for their roles. And we see mutual honor. Both are to be esteemed in this relationship. Jesus wasn't a brainless doormat. He was God. But he laid down his rights, just like he laid down his life to serve others. Paul continues, wives are to submit in everything. Now, wait just a minute. Every harebrained idea. Let's let's see what Peter says in three, one to four. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they're not even believers. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So Peter is saying the same thing as Paul. In fact, he even brings the non-Christian in here, even then it applies If the request is sinful, then you must say no. And we have Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira is a great example of that. If you don't know that story, go back and read it in Acts chapter 5. Sapphira conspired together with Ananias in his deception and she died for it. She didn't have to die. She could have come clean and confessed the sin and she would have lived. But she refused, went along with this sinful plan and paid the price. But the Bible holds the husband accountable for the family unit, just as he did Adam. He bears the ultimate responsibility before God. Marriage works best when matters are openly discussed and a mutual decision is reached. But before God, the husband bears a responsibility. Kathy and I together have made major decisions over the years, like where we're going to live, what seminary I'll attend, what churches we will serve. She advised, we agreed together, and then we prayed about it. 
and God blessed. Wives, also, I would say, accept your husband. And husband, accept your wives. Romans 15:7 says, therefore, welcome or accept one another as Christ has welcomed or accepted you for the glory of God. Trust God to change him because you cannot. And tell him often that you respect him because he needs to hear that. Because he questions himself more than you realize. Okay, let's talk about husbands. Show unselfish love. Husbands, verse 25 through 29 and 33 is your job description. And it's a tough one. I remember going over this passage and a man in our church in Canton came up to me and said, these are the hardest verses in the Bible to do. And he got it because we are to love our wives like Christ loved the church and died a painful death for her. Now, I want to give you three words here that I want you to write down in your sermon notes if you're taking notes. Love her with a love that's sacrificial. A love that's sacrificial. Jesus gave up his rights, privileges, and prerogatives of heaven and came to earth to serve, to suffer, and to die. So what sacrifices have you made, are you making for your wife? When I ask myself that question, Sometimes I realize I'm still very selfish. Love her with a love that's, second word, sanctifying. Are you helping her to be more like Jesus? What am I doing to help my wife grow spiritually? Am I encouraging her to be in the word of God every day and to pray? To use her gifts to serve others? Now, your wife may know more about the Bible than you. She may be more spiritually inclined than you. But God has called you, sir, to be the spiritual leader of your home. So don't shun that duty like Adam did when he allowed Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. Thirdly, love her with a love that's satisfying. And that's the idea of one flesh. Am I meeting my wife's spiritual needs? As you meet her spiritual needs, yours will be met. God won't bless you apart from her. Treat her right, and she will be all that God intended and created her to be. Someone said, and I think this is very true, you can look on a wife's face, and her face shows it all, how she's being treated by her husband. I encourage you men to spend time together with your wives. Communicate your feelings, which I know that's hard to do, and to cherish her and treasure her. That's really what she wants from you. I'll tell you this. It's never convenient to die for someone. Nails hurt. But that's your job description, husbands. If you love her like Christ loved the church, I guarantee you're going to get all the respect you ever want. So will we present our wives to Christ without spot or blemish or as a wounded, unloved, uncherished bride? I'm going to right now, I want to give you a little wedding gift to play a wedding, a musical song by Michael Card. 
Uh, he's also a, a deep lyricist. I, I think you'll appreciate his music if you've never heard of Michael Card. This is called Earthly Perfect Harmony. The lyrics are in your bulletin. If we can uh, play that song. Beautiful, huh? That's the ideal. That's what God wants for your home. Verse 32 applies to everyone because you, a believer, are going to be a bride someday, the bride of Christ. The marriage relationship is the closest parallel there is to that heavenly perfect harmony. So if you don't have that relationship today with Jesus, if you don't know him as your personal savior, you don't share that personal, close, intimate relationship. He wants that with you. He died for you. So if you bow your heads and close your eyes, 
just want to give an opportunity if someone has been thinking about their need to establish that relationship with Christ. You don't know him. You're not saved. But you want to be today. If you just raise your hand. Nobody's looking around. I want to pray for you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Great. Okay. Lord, uh, I thank you for this text, which so pointedly and vividly describes the marriage relationship and how beautiful it is and how you've designed it to work the best. But then Paul had that great insight. It had to be a revelation of the mystery of marriage really is the relationship between a human being and God. And so, Lord, I would pray that each one of us would realize the depth of that and and to walk even more closely with you and long for that. I pray for marriages, that they would be strengthened, Christian marriages in this church and elsewhere, that you would fuse them together, make them indissolvable. And, Lord, I want to uh, lift up the the young man who raised his hand today and just pray for him that he confesses his sins, turns from them and embraces you, believes on you, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world, that he would be saved. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would live inside of him. He's yours now. And he'll bear good fruit for you.